Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We've been going through the book of Daniel with Pastor Ted, and this morning I, uh, I'm going I'm to be taking a little bit of an aside uh, away from uh, Daniel. We're going to be looking at John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26 this morning. And as you're turning there, uh, I want to tell you just a little bit about John so that we're all brought up to speed on who this guy is, what he's about, and what his life is. Is, is all about. John is obviously the author of this book. This book is called John. It's John's Gospel. And uh, this guy, John, is one of the 12 apostles of Jesus, hand-selected by him. That when Jesus was going to start his ministry, he went and he hand-selected 12 guys who would be his disciples, who would then become the apostles, and they would help to form and lead uh, the church in its infancy. This is, is one of those 12 uh, uh, apostles. John is also the author of five books of the Bible, the Gospel of John, which we're in, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and also the book of Revelation. This is who this guy John is. Also, uh, not only was he one of the 12 apostles, but John was part of the inner circle of Jesus. That when, um, when Jesus took his 12 apostles, his 12 disciples, uh, to different places and in various things, he would take three of them specifically, Peter, James, and John, he would take them aside and he would give them special privileged access to certain things. Um, three specific instances are found in Mark chapter 5, verse 37, when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Jesus said, Peter, James, and John, you guys come with me. The rest of you stay out. The rest of you stay here. Peter, James, and John, you're going to be given access to this specific miracle specifically. Also in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, we have the transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus there meets uh, with God, and he is transfigured or transformed into a glorified state. And uh, there, Peter, James, and John are given special privilege, special access to this, to this opportunity, to this time. And also we find in Mark chapter 14, verse 33, that as Jesus is uh, in the garden praying on the night that he's going to be betrayed, the night before he goes to the cross, that Jesus takes a side with him. He comes away from the, the group of, of apostles, away from the crowd, and he takes three guys, Peter, James, and John, and he says, guys, would you just pray with me? These are these three guys, Peter, James, and John. And John is one of those three, one of the three that's able to be with Jesus. In, in this gospel, in John's gospel, he never refers to himself by name. So as you're reading through the gospel of John, whenever you come across the name John, he's not referring to himself. He's most likely referring to John the Baptist. Um, that's where most of the references are, if not all of them, is to John the Baptist or John the Baptizer is who he's referring to when he says John. Also, not only is, is uh, John what part of this, this inner circle of three, but of this inner circle of three, John refers, uh, John is, is, is given um, a special place, a, a different access to Jesus than anybody else. On the night that, that Jesus was betrayed, before they went to the Garden of Gethsemane for prayer, um, Jesus has a, a final dinner with his, uh, with his apostles. And as he gets them together there, John is given this special place of being not only next to Jesus, but in a unique position to actually be able to lean upon Jesus' chest during dinner and have this intimate access to Jesus like no one else. He's someone who is arguably closer to Jesus than any other person. John, as he, as he writes this gospel, he, he refers to, to himself not as John, but as the disciple who Jesus loved. I think it's interesting that he would call himself that. Some people may think, that, uh, think of that as like a, a prideful statement. I'm the one Jesus loved. Uh, I'm his favorite. Um, 
Sorry, uh, stinks to be you, but Jesus loves me. Um, I'm not really certain that that's what he's going for. I think it's more of a position of humility as to say, Jesus loves even me. Uh, this is the same John. Uh, well, James and John, when they, when they were going through a city one time, the city rejected Jesus and they said, we don't want anything to do with you. And so James and John come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, can we call down fire like Elijah did and burn up the whole city and everyone will die? It'll be great. Jesus is like, you don't get it. You guys are not on the same page. This is the John that did that. And John later would be known as the apostle of love because of the transforming work that Jesus does in his life, causing him to not be who he is, but to take up life in Christ and to be transformed, to be completely changed. And so when he says that, that I'm the, the one, the disciple who Jesus loved, I would say that it's much more that he's saying, Jesus even loves me. And if he can love me, then he can love you as well. And so this John, this man, who is arguably closer to Jesus than any other person, writes for us his account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And in this Gospel of John, we have laid out for us some very, very specific things. John's purpose in writing is not left up to ambiguity. It's not left up to speculation. He tells us extremely directly, this is exactly why I'm writing to you. And at the end of his, at the end of his Gospel, John chapter 20, verse 31, he says this, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He says, this is the reason that I've written to you. The reason that that these things are written, everything that I've written up to this point, the entirety of my gospel, every single piece that I've selected for you, I've done so pulling it out very specifically with one purpose in mind. One goal that you would believe that you would have hope in Jesus, that your faith would be placed in him, and that in believing, you may have life in his name. You see, the Gospel of John, it's not a a collection of of cool stories and fun facts, right? Uh, It's not that he's just thinking about, well, remember this one time that Jesus did this? Yeah, let's write that. And then this other time, Jesus, he healed these people? Let's do that. And this one time, Jesus, he multiplied all this food? Let's write about that. That's not what he's talking about. He's not collecting these, these fun facts and cool ideas about Jesus. He's writing very, very specifically. This also, it's not a bunch of uh, buddies trying to outdo one another with their stories. You guys ever have a friend like that? You know, you're telling your story and you're just, you're hoping to, to open up your heart to this person a little bit and, you know, you're, you're telling them about it and they can hardly wait for you to stop talking so they can give you a better story. <laughs> Don't be that guy. Just a little tip. Um, that guy bugs me. I, sometimes I am that guy and, you know, I got to hold, hold back. Don't, just listen. Just listen. That's all. And so this isn't what we're talking about. The Gospel of John is not that. It's not a bunch of, of stories. It's not a, some buddies trying to one-up each other with a bigger, better story. It's a carefully selected and compiled work designed to provoke faith within you. It's designed to provoke faith within you. That when you read through the things that Jesus says, when you look at the things that are, that are established for you, that it does something different within you. It causes you to believe in him and that your faith would produce life in his name. You see, it's, this is because life is produced through believing. The way that life is produced in, in you is through your believing. That's the only way there is to get it. Life is not found in five steps to a better you. Life is not found in moralistic religious things. It's not found in setting a bunch of rules and regulations up and making sure I match all of these things and I measure myself against you and say, I'm keeping the rules better than you are, so I'm a better person. That's not life. It's not where life is found. 
Life is not found in man's great advice that you find this, this one person. If I can ask this person any question, they can give me the greatest advice, and that's where life is found. It's not where life's found. It's not, it's not found. Life is not found in satisfying your cravings. Not, not in, in figuring out whatever desire that you have, whatever fleeting emotion that you have, whatever urge comes through you, that you fulfill that, and then if I fulfill enough of it, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll have life. That's not life. Life isn't found there. That's empty. It's broken. It's passing away. You're not, your life is not in finding yourself. And Jesus is going to tell us about that here in John today. John concludes his gospel reaffirming his precision and his purpose of his writing. He says in John chapter 21, verse 25, and there are so many other things. There are also many other things that Jesus did which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. You see, he's saying that everything that I'm writing to you, that I'm having to purposefully and carefully select the things that I'm telling you, and the reason I'm doing so by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit is for the single purpose of you believing. If I was to go through and write everything that Jesus did, it would be so crazy I couldn't even write it all down. He says, I suppose that the world couldn't even contain the books that would be written if I was to do such a thing. He even proves this point in the Gospel of John itself that starting from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 20, that's only one week of time. Half of his entire Gospel, half of what he writes is only one week of time. And so there is so much that, that, that is written here and so much that is, that is not written and that is left out purposefully to take these things and to provoke faith within us, to cause us to be a believing People. So let's read John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26 together, and we're going to go through this this morning and see what Jesus has to say. It says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. When they came to, then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus, verse 23, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. We're going to talk about three different things today in looking at these, this section of Scripture, all centered around verse 23, which talks about this idea of hour, this hour or this time. We're going to talk about this, this time of Jesus' popularity, this time of Jesus' purpose, and also the time of Jesus' pattern that, that we look at his life in these, these three ways. So first, this time of Jesus' popularity. Here, as we, as we enter into this, this uh, narrative, we see that this is a time of national worship and celebration in Israel. The entire nation of Israel was gathered together in Jerusalem at this time, and Jesus is there, and they're all coming together for this feast. You see, they were commanded to gather together in Leviticus chapter 23. You can read about all seven of these feasts that, that, that were commanded. They were commanded to gather together seven times annually in order to have a big barbecue. God is good, right? Like, we need to institute this today. We should be doing this stuff. We should just get together. Everyone take the week off of work. We'll have a giant national barbecue. Um, that's a cool idea. And God comes up with it, and he, and he commands it. You will do this. 
This is a good, this is Old Testament kind of God, right? This is a cool God. And so he's, he's giving to us this gracious command. And one of these seven sacred feasts is the feast of Passover. And this is where we find ourselves in John chapter 12, is at the feast of Passover. Now, Passover is uh, this commemoration where they remembered God's deliverance of the nation of Israel from Egyptian bondage. They remembered this. They celebrated God's ability and His great accomplishment. Turn with me, if you will, back to Exodus chapter 12. I want to show you just a couple of things about when God instituted this, uh, this, this command of Passover and, and some things that He says about it. Exodus chapter 12 is where we find it. And we'll start in verse, uh, verse 1 of Exodus chapter 12. Genesis and then Exodus is the second book in your Bible. Chapter 12 is where we find uh, the Passover being instituted. The, the nation of Israel is in bondage to Egypt. They're enslaved to Egypt. They're held captive. God has brought so far nine plagues upon the, the, the land, and uh, Pharaoh will not let the people leave. And so God is, is bringing him to this point, culminating in this time where this tenth plague The 10th plague of the death of the firstborn is about to come upon the people. And God uses this opportunity to say that not only is this a chance for me to set my people free, but I'm going to foreshadow something else. That this is going to be a picture of something else. That something else is taking place uh, that I'm setting up. And so he he says that we need to to recognize that and he commands his people to to, uh, celebrate this as a feast. Continually, Exodus chapter 12, we're going to read verses 1 through 7 and then 12 through 14. It says this, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So right there off the bat, we see that God's doing something totally different. He's saying, I'm, I'm changing your entire calendar. This is going to be your beginning. This is going to be where you mark the beginning of your year based upon this Time based upon this thing. He says, verse 3, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, One, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make uh, your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You, you may take it from the sheep, or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Go down to verse 12. For I, God speaking, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you as a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And so God here takes this opportunity of this tenth plague that the death of the firstborn is coming upon the the nation of Egypt. That God is bringing judgment upon Egypt for their idolatry and for their their desire to to kick against God and to, to forsake Him and to not submit themselves to His will. And so God brings judgment upon 
upon Egypt. But he says, I'm bringing judgment upon Egypt and, and Israel, my people, there is a way for you to escape the judgment. I'm going to provide a way for you to escape the judgment. It's very specific. You need to take a lamb. It needs to be of the, of the first year, meaning don't take an old one that's going to die anyway, right? He's like, don't, don't just give me your leftovers. I want the best. Take a lamb of the first year. It's got to be a male, and it has to have no blemishes in it. You can't take the one who fell in a hole the last week, and it's broken leg, and, you know, it's just, I don't really like that one anyway, and so we're going to get rid of it. You've got to take your absolute best, and you're going to sacrifice that to me. And you're going to take some of the blood of this sacrifice, of this lamb, and you're going to put it over, over the lentil and over the doorposts of your house. And this is going to be a symbol. This blood is going to be a symbol that you are my people, that you belong to me, that you're not like everyone else in the world, that you're not like the Egyptians, that you're separate, that you're different from them, and that this symbol will be to me a sign and I will pass over you and I will not cause you to endure the death that the Egyptians will, that you will not be uh, attached to the judgment of God, but you'll be set free from it. And so Jesus is, is, is seen here as a picture of this Passover lamb. The only way that Israel was saved from judgment was through the blood of the spotless lamb marking their homes. And, and, and we have that Israel from this time forward is commanded to have a memorial. Is commanded to have a feast to the Lord. And they would celebrate what God has done in his great celebration. And so they, they continue this tradition on all the way to the Gospel of John. Turning back there with me, if you will, to John chapter 12, we see that Jesus is here at this time. Jesus has come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. If we look at the beginning of chapter 12 in verse 1, it tells us that six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was. You see, Jesus is making his way back to Jerusalem. He's coming to celebrate the Passover. He's coming to do that which is, is commanded of the people of God. And on his way there, he stops by uh, his friend Lazarus' house. This is a habit for Jesus to attend the feast with his disciples. As any, as any good Jewish boy would with his parents when he came of age, he would attend the feast. And so this isn't Jesus' first Passover. This isn't the first time he's attended Passover. As, as a, a rabbi of this time, as a teacher of this time, he would, he would frequent the feast. He would make it a habit of taking his disciples and going to the feast. And so this isn't the first one, but this is a very different Passover. This Passover is not the same as all the rest. Every Passover that has gone before, all the way back to, Je to, to Exodus chapter 12, until now, has had the same ritual going on. But now, something drastically different is taking place. Something completely different is happening. We see in chapter 12, verse 12, that Jesus is, uh, as he enters Jerusalem the next day, something, something crazy happens. Let's read in verse, verses 12 uh, through 15 together of uh, John 12, 12 through 15. It says, The next day, so the, the, the first day is, is 12 1. The next day, uh, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they had heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, and they cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not. Daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He comes into Jerusalem at this time of Passover. And as he does so, something completely drastic and different takes place. 
Jesus entering into Jerusalem does so uh, by, the, by the inspiration and power of the Spirit causing there to be a culmination of the fulfillment of Scripture. As it is written, it says there for us in, in verse uh, 14, that, that, that Jesus, the King, is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. The people cry out. They gather, they gather branches. They gather palm branches and they, they come and they lay them at Jesus' feet. And it says that there's a great multitude who do so. The, some historians would estimate that up to 2.7 million people are gathered in Jerusalem at this time to celebrate at the feast. And so these people, this great multitude takes palm branches and they, they line the streets and they worship Jesus and they cry out to Him and they say, Hosanna! Which is to say, save now! Jesus, save us. You're our king. You're our hope. You're our glory. You're our everything. We need you so desperately. And yet the people had a wrong idea of glory. They had a misconception of what that glory was. They had a misconception of what that salvation was. As they were crying out, save now, their intent was for their kingdom. Their intent was for an earthly kingdom. They were asking Jesus, deliver us from the Roman occupation. Deliver us from those who are our oppressors. And you will be our king. And you will sit on the throne. And you will rule. And you will reign. And we will reign with you. That's what their hope was. That's what they were looking for. But this is not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to fulfill their desires. He didn't come to fulfill their hour. He came for His own hour, for His own time. Jesus' fame and popularity are at an all-time high. We see that in verse 12. There's a great multitude. In verse 19, the Pharisees even say, the whole world is going after this guy. There's nothing we can do about it. Everyone is chasing after Him. And I'm sure that you could, you could sense the anticipation and the excitement being thick in the air as Jesus enters in. And He's riding on this donkey and the people are crying out, Hosanna! And they're calling, them, calling Him their King. They're worshiping Him. They're glorifying Him. And, and the anticipation is high. The excitement is thick. And the disciples may have very easily thought, we finally made it. The years of sacrifice are finally paying off. Jesus, you don't even have a house Man, you're, you're poor. And, and we've been wandering around and staying at people's houses and eating their food. And geez, this has been rough. But now the people are finally recognizing how great you are. And they're starting to say, Jesus is great. Man, I'm so excited. Jesus, where's my office going to be? Oh, it's going to be awesome. The, the disciples would even argue about this. As they're walking along, they would say, they would argue among themselves, who's the greatest? Um, James and John, they actually asked their mom, to go ask Jesus if uh, they could be on his right and his left uh, when he came into glory. They were thinking, we will be ruling with Jesus. Little did they know they were asking to be uh, crucified with him. Um, that was a bad request. Uh, I don't know if they, they didn't really gather that, but you know, um, they didn't know that's what they were doing because their, their focus was earthly. Their focus was on an earthly glory. They had no concept of the eternal. They weren't looking to the future. They were stuck on the here and on the now. The disciples may have easily thought we finally made it. And now, at this point, even the Greeks have heard of this miracle worker, of this amazing public speaker, and they're seeking him out. We see that in verse 20. It says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast. When they came to Philip, uh, then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And so Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told, told Jesus. They're coming together and they are seeking out Jesus on behalf of this Greek. Man, everything seems like it's working together. But Jesus' response is something drastically different, something that they were not 
expecting. It may have seemed so in the beginning, but what we'll see is that what Jesus says is very different from what they were expecting to hear. Verses 23 and 24 say this, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Not only was this the time or the hour of Jesus' popularity, but this was also the time or the hour of Jesus' purpose. Everything was coming to this point. The hour of Jesus had finally come. One of the things that, that you need to grasp in this, as you look at verse 23, it says these two ideas, the, the, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. These two ideas, the hour and the glorification of Jesus, are one and the same. You cannot remove them from one another. The glorification, the, to be, the, Jesus being glorified, is his hour. His hour is to be glorified. And when he talks about being glorified, what he's saying is that that his purpose is to go to the cross. His purpose is his death, burial, and resurrection. This is his glorification. It's not what people thought. It's not the, the glory that they were hoping for, but it's a different kind of glory. It's something that had eternal implications, not just temporal implications. Something that had value beyond just the here and now. And so the hour of Jesus and his glorification are one and the same, and they cannot be removed From one another. The Pharisees, the disciples, and the masses all had one thing in common when it came to to, to Jesus. They completely misunderstood his purpose. The Pharisees, the disciples, and the masses all completely misunderstood his purpose. They thought that his purpose was to make his own kingdom. Whether they were for him or against him, whether they liked it or not, they thought that Jesus was here to set up an earthly temporal kingdom, that he was looking to ascend to power, that he was looking for position, that he was looking to amass wealth, that he was looking for all the things that people seek after, and yet Jesus was not. His time and his glory are are very different. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, you can turn there if you'd like to, I'm going to read it to you. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 um, says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The fullness of the time. This speaks of a very specific time. It's not, it's not vague. It's not uncertain. It's not unclear. It's purposeful. It's direct. It's exact. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Here's the reason, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the glorification of God. This is the glory of Jesus. That His time, His hour has come, and the purpose behind all of it, the reason for it all, is because He's going to buy you back from sin and death. That He's going to take back for you that which has been removed from you. That He's going to give to you life that you lost, that is no longer yours. This is the glory of Jesus. This is what He is all about. And they had completely missed it. They, they all believed. The, the Pharisees, the disciples, the masses, they all believed that His purpose was an earthly glory. They, they completely missed the internal, eternal implications. The, the word glory is a word that means high renown or honor won by notable achievements. High renown or honor won by notable achievements. Or it's to cause dignity or worth of someone to be made manifest. Jesus is well on his way to achieving the pinnacle of human glory. To achieving fame and popularity and position and power and wealth. But these things are all temporary at best. 
And they are godless idolatry at worst. While they had failed to realize that Jesus was not only the king, but that he was also, he was also the lamb. They see here in John chapter 12, as Jesus enters in, they proclaim him as the king. You're our king. The scripture is fulfilled that the king would come riding on a donkey. And as he does this, they, they recognize him as the king, but what they failed to see was that he was not only the king, but he was also the lamb. In, in the beginning of, of the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verse 29, uh, John foreshadows this for us. He starts all the way from the beginning, helping us to see that this is his purpose. This is his goal. This is the, the, the achievement, the pinnacle of Jesus' life is the cross. It is to be the Lamb of God. He says in, in John 1, 29, the next day John, this is John the Baptist, not John the author. Uh, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is something that is stated from the very beginning and he's moving toward this with everything that he, that he does, everything that he says. Everything is coming to this time, to this moment. Chapter, 20, chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus himself would be the sacrificial Passover lamb appeasing the righteous judgment of a holy God. He would be the sacrificial lamb. The, the Passover of Exodus was a, was a foreshadowing and a foretelling of Jesus and what he would do to redeem mankind. This is Jesus' hour, and this is Jesus' glorification. This, this concept of the hour is a specific theme to the Gospel of John. As you look through the Gospel of John, you see this concept of the hour coming up over and over again. It starts in chapter 2, verse 4, when Jesus is at the, the wedding. And, and, and they're at the, the wedding feast, and they run out of wine. And uh, they're like, Jesus, do something about it. Mary comes to Jesus. Jesus, they're out of wine. Do something about it. And Jesus' response is, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. In chapter 7, verse 6, his brothers are trying to get him to, to take the, the fame and the popularity and he says, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 7, verse 30, he says, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 8, verse 20, he says, my hour has not yet come. Over and over and over again, this is a theme throughout the Gospel of John, that Jesus has a specific hour, he has a specific purpose, and it's directly linked to his glorification. His glory is exactly where it's linked to. You cannot separate the two. Jesus defines what his purpose is by stating what it's not. When he says, my hour has not yet come, and when, when, when it's told that this was not his hour, it is telling us that, that this, is, this is not what Jesus is about so that we can help to understand what he is about. He defines his purpose by stating what it's not. He says, my purpose is not to make you happy. My purpose is not to accomplish your plans. My purpose is not to build your business. My purpose is not to make you wealthy and healthy and wise. My purpose is not to help your favorite sporting team win their game. That's not my purpose. That's not my point. It's not necessarily sinful to pray for such things and to ask God for his blessing and to ask for his direction, to ask him to help you with your business, to pray that the shot goes in, even though the guy's really bad and it's not going to go in anyway. It's not It's not sinful to pray for such things. But we have to understand that this is not the purpose of Jesus. This is not why Jesus exists. He does not exist to make you happy. He does not exist to accomplish your plans. He does not exist to make things right in your life and happy and good and to give you the most peaceable life until you die. That is not why Jesus exists. He's not so much concerned about your happiness as he is with your holiness. And he proves it through the way that he takes upon himself your sin 
and dies in your stead that you may have life. These may not be bad things to pray about, but they're not Jesus' purpose. When we reduce Jesus to such a purpose, we, we create an idol of those things and we try to use Jesus to get our idol. And it's evil and it's wrong and we need to repent of it. Everything in human history reaching all the way back to Genesis and our first parents, Adam and Eve, and the fallen depravity of man. And the first prophecy of Jesus in Genesis 3.15, everything from then up until John 12.23 has been moving to this one point, this hour, this time, this, this opportunity of glorification. Everything has been, has been culminating to this point. It's been moving here. The, the, this single moment, this hour is everything. Without this hour, there is no hope. There is no future. There is only despair and death that awaits us. There is nothing without this hour. This is everything for us. You see, Jesus has, become, has come to become a substitutionary sacrifice on yours and my behalf. His work of providing salvation to mankind is glorious. This is glory. Not, not the things that I rashly trade for that, the things that I settle for, my own personal glory. Not the things that fade away and are temporal, but providing salvation, purchasing it for, for, for mankind. So Jesus employs, so that we don't miss it, he employs an agricultural uh, uh, analogy for us in verse 24. He says, the hour has come in verse 23 that the Son of Man should be glorified. And in verse 24, he follows that up immediately with an agricultural analogy so that we can understand what he's talking about. Just so that we don't, we don't mistakenly think that somehow Jesus is here for my glory and for my purpose, he shows us exactly what he's talking about through this analogy. He says, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. <clears throat> but if it dies... It produces much grain. This is something that's simple and easy for us to understand in terms of plants. My wife and I are horrible at planting things. No matter what we get, we'll go buy it and it'll be a plant. And wherever we get it from, it's lush and green and awesome. Within a matter of days, we've murdered the thing. It's horrible. I don't know what's wrong with us. We've had lots of people give us advice. And so, you know, if you have some advice, it's cool and all. But we're just, we're plant killers. That's what we do. Um, <laughs> it's a miraculous thing, though, when the plant takes life. When you put a seed into some soil and then it makes a plant and produces more, like that's, that's a cool idea. That's amazing that Jesus could come up with such a thing. That you put one seed in and you get an abundance more. That's amazing. That's miraculous. And Jesus employs this idea to help us to understand what his purpose is, to understand what he's all about. That it's about, it's about something different from what we would we would naturally think. He employs this agriculture analogy so we wouldn't miss what he means by his hour and his glorification, that his death produces life. This single planted grain springs back to life and produces more grain. He even says that it would produce much grain or much fruit, as it's stated there. There are at least, in this, there are at least three principles to sowing and reaping that I want to share with you guys as we look at this. Just three, three, at least three principles that we can look at and that Jesus is looking to employ to help us to understand him, his purpose, what he's doing, and how that can apply to our lives and how we can do the same with him. Before we jump into those, I want to read with you Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. Would you turn there with me real quick? Galatians 6, 
7 through 9. Um, I want you to see these verses because we, we have a tendency to read over them and, uh, and, and to, to become familiar with them, but I want it to be fresh in your mind and to read it so that as we look at these, these concepts of these principles of sowing and reaping, that you can, uh, you can have this, this fresh in your mind and relate it back to this. Because he tells us right here, it says, do not be deceived, Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Here we have laid out for us some principles of sowing and reaping. And Jesus employs this, this analogy for us to understand this. Principle number one, you can't keep it, you got to give it, right? You have to actually put it in the ground. If you keep your grain of wheat and you eat it, you don't get more. You have to put it in the ground, you have to bury it, you have to cover it over, signifying its death, and from that, it will produce more grain. That you have to give it, you can't keep it. It's an idea of sacrifice. That there's only one way to get much grain or much fruit. It's through death. It's through giving. It's through sacrifice. No sacrifice equals no blessing. With sacrifice equals great blessing. Death is the only way to get it. The result of death is abundant life. And so the question I have for you, the question I want to ask you is, are you willing to let go of what you think has life in it? Are you willing to let it die? Are you willing to let go of those things that, that, that consume your thoughts and consume your mind? What you think you need for your life. What you think is going to make you happy. What you think is going to produce life in you. Are you willing to let that go and to let it die so that the life of God can be raised up within you? Are you willing to do that? The second is that you sow and reap in different seasons of time or times. You guys are thinking I'm a genius right now, right? You're like, yeah, you sow and reap in different, yeah, way to go, guy, glad I came today. All right, so you sow and you reap in different seasons or times. It may seem like a simple thing, but we don't get it. We, we tend to, to, to invest something here and expect that I come back 10 minutes later and it's grown up and it's all matured and it's ready to go. But you sow and you reap in different seasons or times. What this means is that I'm responsible for what I'm reaping today. I'm much less a victim of circumstance than I like to, I like to believe. That the things that are happening in my life today have much more to do with what I sowed yesterday, what I've sown in the past, and that I'm reaping the benefits or the, the, the difficulty of those things. And that if I sow today, that I'm going to be investing for tomorrow. I reap today what I've sown yesterday, and I must wait for tomorrow's reward. So the question comes, are you willing to take responsibility for today? To not play the victim? To not say, the circumstances are just bad, and I'm giving up on whatever? Are you willing to say that I'm going to take responsibility for this, and I've sown to the flesh, and that's why I'm reaping destruction today, and instead today I'm going to sow to the Spirit that tomorrow I can reap everlasting life? Are you willing? Are you willing to do such a thing? The third principle is this. You only reap what you sow. You only reap what you sow. You don't plant an avocado tree and expect to get corn out of it. Right? You don't do that. It just doesn't work like that. You only reap what you sow. Whatever you put in is what you're going to get out. Consequences have both good and bad implications. If I sow death, I cannot expect to reap life. And to do so is foolish. 
to think that I can live for myself and that, I can, that, that all of my time and energy and effort can be selfish and self-serving and about me and my kingdom and promoting my glory and to think that I spend all my time on this and then blessings going to come is foolishness. It's psychotic. It's crazy. The only way for blessing to flow, the only way for that to be possible is if you sow to the Spirit. If you're willing to die to yourself, to let yourself pass away, that the life of Christ may live in you. It takes discipline. It takes, it takes courage. If I sow to death, I cannot expect to reap life. Are you willing to do the hard work of sowing good seed today? Are you willing to do that? Well, not only do we have this shown for us in terms of the hour of Jesus' purpose, but we also, in John 12, see that we have the time of Jesus' pattern. Verses 25 and 26 says this. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my Father, will honor You see, Jesus takes this analogy a step further, applying it not only to himself and saying, I'm going to die so that you can live, but I expect the same from you. That if you're my people, if you're marked by my spirit, if you've been redeemed by me, if you call yourself a Christian, you cannot live for yourself any longer. Your life is not, no longer marked by you, it's marked by Jesus. He says, you have got to be these kinds of people. Jesus calls us into a paradox through contrast. He, he takes these ideas, look there in verse 25, of love against hate and against, uh, of temporal life against eternal life. He calls us into this paradox and he shifts everything and he turns everything upside down, which is common in the kingdom of God. Everything that's natural about the way that humans think is different in the kingdom of God. He turns it upside down. And this is no, no different. He says, if you want life, it's found through the doorway of death. That's the only way to get it. And so he contrasts Love against hate and temporal versus eternal. You see, Jesus' promise is not only life, but it's eternal life. It's not just that you would, you would live and that you would continue to have longevity here. That's not what he's necessarily talking about. He's saying that there's a promise and a future and a hope of heaven. There's something that awaits you beyond the here and now. But the only way to get it is by following his example of death. You see, life is no longer about you being fulfilled. It's not about you being satisfied. It's not about my marriage fulfilling me. It's not about my work fulfilling me. It's not about my stuff fulfilling me. It's not about my entertainment and my hobbies. It's not about me. Life's not about me. As long as I look for life in those things, I create idols. I look for Jesus to bring those things to pass in my life. You see, none of those things while, while, while they're all good, marriage is good, work is good, things are good, entertainment is good, and hobbies are good, while all of those things are good, if they become God, they become deadly. They're not designed to bring you fulfillment. Only Jesus is. And if you put Jesus where he belongs, that he provides my fulfillment, he is my everything, he is my source of life, and that all of these other things pass away, and I hate them by comparison to how much I love Jesus, that all of these things are behind me, and that they fall in line under Jesus, then they can have their right place, then they can be used properly, then they will not become idols, then they will not control your life. In order to be marked by the life of Jesus, we must first be willing to be marked by his death. Our lives are to be patterned after his. And Jesus goes first, 
providing the way and proving it to be sure. Jesus Himself dies, is buried, and is raised from the dead. And then He says, I want you to do the same. I want you to let go of your life. Allow your life to be dead. Allow your life to pass away. And the promise is, the hope is, the certain expectation is that in doing so, I can lay hold on eternal life. There's a couple of words here in this contrast. There's the word love and the word hate there. Uh, the word love is, is the word uh, phileo in Greek. It means to approve of. It's usually used of brotherly love, but it means to approve of, to sanction, to treat affectionately, or to be fond of. And so he says here in verse 25, he who loves his life will lose it. If you, if you approve of your life, if you're, if you're all about your life, if everything that you do is centered around making you happy, then you're going to lose it. Your life is, is, is losing meaning and purpose. But he says, if you hate it, if you hate your life, and, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. This world hate is meseo, which is uh, the, the, word, the Greek word hate. It's not meaning that you know, Jesus isn't saying, hey, uh, I'm promoting um, suicide to everyone. You should all hate yourselves and everyone go kill yourself. That's not what he's talking about, right? He's not talking about such a thing. This term hate is, is, is not talking in terms of, of, of looking down on yourself and, and hating yourself. What he's saying is that it is, is a word that means relative preference for one thing over another. That in relation to how much I, I adore Jesus, even the good things in my life are seen as though I hate them, that I can't stand them, that I can't wait to get away from them so I can pursue Christ. You must believe in heaven in the hope of eternal life, in such a way that it produces hope and certain expectation. That I believe in heaven, not in some vague, ambiguous concept out in the future that I will never attain, but that it's real, it's certain, it's my destiny, it's where I'm going, it's where I'm headed. And because that's where my hope is found, because it's in Jesus and the hope of eternity and heaven in Him, that this produces within me a certain expectation and then I can abandon what the world measures as life and success and fulfillment in order to lay hold of Jesus. But it takes this death first. Death first, then life, not the other way, other way around. This is the call that Jesus gives to us. And so he redefines for us life by his perspective in verse 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And, the, the, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. You see, death is not a life that is lost. It's a life that is sacrificed with the understanding that the way of fruitfulness lies through death. The potential for fruitfulness only becomes actual by the application of death. The potential that's there for the grain of wheat to produce more only becomes actual when you put it in the ground. If you hold on to it, it will never produce the wheat. In the same way, by serving Jesus instead of me, by dying to myself and living to Him, the potential for life, for honoring God, is actualized. Holding on to your life forfeits the potential for eternal life the same way that holding on to wheat forfeits the potential for more grain. Here we see that as, as, he, as Jesus concludes this section, that, that God, the Father, honors the heart and attitude of the servant. The servant, the word servant is the, the Greek word diakonos, which is where we get the, the, the title deacon within the church, which means one who serves, one who executes the command of another. And then this phrase, let him follow, in verse 26, is, it means to become or to be his disciple, to follow one who proceeds, to join as an attendant 
of another. The que- my question to you is, 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 is this what marks your life? Is this what your life is marked by? Or is it that I'm so busy serving myself, I'm so busy chasing my things, my vision, my glory, my purpose, my fulfillment, my satisfaction, my life, my way, that I don't even consider the things of God? I've abandoned them in order to seek after myself. Jesus says, where I am, my servant will be also. This has three implications. Proximity, you're going to be close to him physically. In your heart, you're going to be close to him emotionally. And in your mind, you're going to be close to him mentally. I'm here and I'm all in. You see, if you find yourself not close to Jesus, it's not because he moved. Jesus said he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never abandon you. If you're not close to Jesus, you're the one who needs to move, not him. Where his servant is, there you will be, where he is, there his servant will be found also. Jim Elliot has written in his journal on October 28, 1949, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. What perspective do you have? What governs your choices and your decisions? Is it comfort? Is it ease? Is it luxury? Or is it sacrifice and responsibility and service? The answer to these questions will help you to see whether you're serving Jesus or you're trying to get Jesus to serve you.